So you guys, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to do a part two of the upper room time. Uh, it'll really end up being many parts because it's all the way through John 17 that there's an upper room ministry happening. But I'd like to do a part two of the uh, foot washing service uh, that Jesus did towards his disciples uh, because there's just there's a lot there that, that will minister to our hearts. There's a lot there that leads us towards salvation uh, in eternity through Christ Jesus. But there's also a lot there that the Lord has us here and now as a body towards one another. And so uh, if you're going through the Bible reading plan with us right now, we've been working through the Gospel of John. And just in the last few days, uh, we were in John chapter 13. And it was a time that I spent with Lainey, my little girl, uh, reading with her, 11 years old, and talking to her about what Jesus was doing here. And uh, even maybe getting a little too deep for her when I was like, and chapter 13 through 17 is like this long time that they had in the upper room together. And you don't really see that in the other, you know, and she's kind of like, you know, checking out a little bit, but I got a little bit excited. Alexander McLaren wrote of this remarkable discourse, uh, just where we're at uh, in John 13 through 17. He said, nowhere else is his speech at once so simple And so deep, nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech. Even as the cross to which they led up his most perfect self-revelation in act. And so with our family, as we were reading, and again with Lainey, we were uh, driving and reading chapter 17, where it's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And just in this prayer of Jesus, uh, he's revealing who he is. There's references to his deity, his deep um, relationship with the Father and the Trinity and his heart for the disciples to love one another and serve one another and that they would be missionaries to this dark world. And then he says, and not them only, but all those who would follow after him. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here today, how awesome is it that John 17, Jesus was praying for you. And uh, so be encouraged by that. You're in Jesus's thoughts Uh, not only now as he ever lives to make intercession for you, uh, but even then while he was on the earth, he had a mind and a heart towards 2021 Prideville right here that we would be uh, like his disciples in John 17. So, uh, So we have this deep revelation of Jesus, the disclosure of Jesus. We read this parable It's a living, acted out parable that Jesus shows us through his own actions, which speak louder than words. Uh, We have this living uh, parable that is uh, something for us to just press in deeply into our hearts today. Now, last week we looked kind of at what would be the part one of Jesus's message through this parable, and it was an act of God by which human beings are freed or cleansed. And that is through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. As the psalmist said, David, after his adultery, he said, O Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and purge me from within. He wanted to be cleansed. He knew that a washing was needed. 
Uh, We know that Titus is told by the Apostle Paul that it's not by works of righteousness that we're saved. It's not by our own outward um, acts of uh, religiosity, but rather it's through the inward cleansing of the Holy Spirit when he comes into our lives and pardons us of our sins and cleanses us of our uh, wicked heart, giving us a new heart. No longer do we have a heart made out of stone, which is hard as a rock and cannot know God or be known by God, but the Holy Spirit puts in us a heart of flesh that now beats and is full of life and, and has relationship with God. Where I don't even need to tell you anymore, hey, know God, because there's been a work of the Spirit in you where you just have a relationship with the Lord. It's a beautiful thing called the new covenant, and it happens through the act of Jesus on the cross in the blood that he shed. We talked about that last week when Jesus was washing Peter's feet. And Peter said, are you washing my feet? And, uh, and Jesus says, hey, what I'm, not, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but you're going to understand. Not so, Lord, you cannot wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And what was G- uh, Peter's response? Well, then, why don't wash my hands and my head and my whole entire body, too? And then Jesus says, no, no, no. Not necessary. He who's already been washed need only have his feet washed. It's this crazy, confusing, which if you spend much time in discipleship groups, do you ever feel like that's how it is? You're like, I'm totally getting it. And then they like, you know, your, your mentor spiritually who's had biblical training is like, well, actually the context of what we're reading would point to this. You're not actually getting it. No, I'm not getting it. Well, you're doing all right. Just be encouraged. Okay, so I'm getting, no, but actually you missed, you know, but it's okay. It's just all about humility and us learning and growing and how to understand the Bible, growing in the word of God. Peter had those times all the time. That's why we need the Holy Spirit in us to help us understand. And so, uh, and so last week we studied that, that once an initial washing that Jesus was referring to Peter was the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating, that when we are born again by putting our faith in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect life that he lived that we could never live, the death that he died on a Roman cross that was meant for us to die, but he died there substitutionally for us. He took our place on that Roman cross, that anyone who would believe on that act would have his goodness and his death put into their account and they would have all of their sin and wickedness and lust and covetousness and unfaithfulness and rebellion put upon his shoulders on that Roman tree that he would wash us whiter than snow by the blood that he shed that we would also have hope not only that he didn't stay dead hanging on that cross but he was buried in a tomb he didn't stay dead buried in that tomb but he rose from the dead so that anyone who believed in them believed in him would also rise from the dead here and now and there in the future. Right now, do you feel like your life is like dead? I mean, it's like I'm alive, but I'm the walking dead. You know, I'm alive, but I got no hope. I'm alive, but there's no passion for the Lord. I'm alive, but I don't even understand the Lord. Uh, I'm alive, but I'm depressed. And I'm, I've just got this thunder cloud over me where there's just no hope. There's no light. There's no beauty. I don't know Jesus. And the beauty of the gospel is that the resurrected king, as we often sing at this church, is resurrecting me. That's a work that he does in the gospel. When you come to Jesus, we have a new hope. We have a new life. We have new joy. We're like the apostle Paul who might be in chains and in prisons, but we've got more joy than we've ever had because he's done a heart transformation in us. 
And that's what happens when we're washed with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We're made a new man. We're made a new woman. And I just wonder if you've ever had that happen to you. If you've ever come to Jesus and you've laid aside all of your pedigree, all of your heritage, all that you've got that's on the outside of you that would make you look good and make God owe you something. You know, have you ever seen uh, We Were Soldiers, you know? Mel Gibson plays just that incredible Hal Moore, you know? I love the movie, and he's just so brave and courageous, and he's the first one off the chopper, and he's the last one off on the chopper on the way out, and you're just like, man, I love that guy. I'm a bit of a history buff. And so I would research, and I would read all about uh, Hal Moore and just how incredible he is. And, and someone interviewed him about his faith in God and if he believed in Jesus or, you know, what his hope was for the future and if he would go to heaven. And as much as I love Hal Moore and as much as I just, oh, just adore his courage and I want that, he, was, he had a worldview that was like so many of the false religions of our day. That is, I just hope that at the end of my life, I've done more good then I've done bad, and it'll kind of tip the scales in my favor, and that the Lord will just accept me and let me in. But you guys, that is the soul and substance of every false religion in the world, that it's based on our works and our labors and the works of our hands and the things that we can offer that God might owe us. And the book of Romans just squashes that flat, and it says, man, if, if that's you and you're just going to stand before the Lord on that day and just be like, well, I did this and I did that and I went there and here's what my grandpa did and I just have all of this going for me and this and that and the other, blah, blah, blah. And it says, your mouth will be stopped, your heart will be revealed and you'll be found a liar. Because if there's one thing the Bible shows us, it's that the Lord doesn't look at the outward things, but he looks at the heart. He wants to know what you've done with Jesus. He wants to know if you've become like a little child. Forget that you've just got it all figured out. And you've got to come like a little child. A little bit of snot coming down your face. A little bit of dirt all over you, you know. You accidentally tucked your, sock, your pant leg into your sock that day, you know. And you're just like, I don't know, you know. Like, can you go to the potty with me, you know, or whatever. And it's like, okay, like clearly you're humble, okay. And you just got to come to the Lord like, I don't get it. I mean... Gosh, I thought I had it together. But then I came before this book. Ooh, I got a letter from somebody. Should probably get back to them. Um, <laughs> then I looked into this book and found an envelope. That, okay. I looked into this book and I saw a mirror that showed me my innermost thoughts and the intents of my heart. And that I'd been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that I was in need of an inward cleansing. A cleansing that no launderer could ever work. It would have to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And this is just a little bit of review and thank you for bearing with me. But what Jesus is saying is like, hey, if you have been washed, that's all you need, Peter. Except the occasional foot washing. And by that, the context of scripture, the Bible tells us and experience confirms it are these wonderful acts of grace that God's given us where we're just before his throne and we're washed 
from the stuff of the week. You know, the dust from our feet is washed off. Had a great talk with a neat man of God last Sunday after we were walking out of the church. And he just said, man, I really think that's in it. We don't, this is not how we interpret the Bible, by the way. Like, I really think it's this. But as we look at the scripture, when we come to the communion table, we must have gotten those trays out of here. They, <laughs> there's some sweet stuff up here, though. When we come to the communion table, we're told by 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves. And that's a bit of a foot washing that happens as we come to the table. So let the Lord wash us from our weak. See if there be any wicked way in us, as the psalmist says. Search my heart and know my anxieties and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And that's just a time that the Lord's just like, a scrub, a scrub, scrub, a scrub, a scrub, scrub on the bottom of our feet, just from the week, from the day. It's times of confessing our sin and just letting the Holy Spirit wash over us. And so that was part one, where there's this act of God where we are cleansed from the inside out through the gospel. Okay, and let's get into part two that I really feel like I wanted to camp here another week with you guys. It's summertime. We're all about camping, aren't we? Check out verse one. We're going to kind of go a little bit fast. We're going to do a little skip to my loo. And it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows it's time. We read the rest of the gospels. We read the previous accounts. He'd be healing people and he knew, hey, my hour has not yet come Now he's saying, my hour has come. It's time for me to be glorified. And we knew that he was speaking of the glory of the cross. If I may hang out for a second on this beautiful finish of this verse that I love so much, because it says he loved his own who were in the world, having loved them or he loved them to the end. The words to the end might be taken adverbally, like in the NIV, to say he loved them to the uttermost, or he loved them utterly. Maybe your translation says he loved them to the fullest extent. I mean, how can I show somebody that I love them with everything that's in me? You play that game with your kids when you're tucking them in bed at night, you're like, how much do you think daddy loves you, you know? And they're like, you know, and you're like, this much? And they're like, mm-hmm. and you're like, this much? Mm-hmm. And then you're just like, this much? You stretch them out as far as they can, and then you wrap them around them, and you just give them a bunch of kisses, you know? And it's just like, I love you just to the fullest extreme, to the fullest extent. And that's a better rendering of the uh, original text. As uh, Guzik says, it does not mean that Jesus continued to love his disciples only up to the end of his career, but that his love has no limits. If we were to take he loved them to the end as a temporary, it means that Jesus loved them to the very end of his life, which is still good, but biblically, he loved us even farther than that, and because he lives... He loves us now. Uh, It was David Guzik, or rather it was D.A. Carson, who said the text presupposes 
that the way Jesus displays his unflagging love for his own is in the cross immediately ahead. Do you guys know that the cross is just like a half a day away for Jesus at this point? And it's in his act of self-abasing love, the foot washing, that anticipates the cross just some eight hours later, okay? We know chapter 15, verse 13 of John. You probably have it memorized. Maybe even if you don't know, you memorize it. It's, you've, been, you've heard it in the movies. Greater love has no man than this. Than what? You guys know it? Then he lays down his life for a friend. And so as we look at this, we see Jesus is loving them to the end. One, one sermon that I listened to this week titled this passage, Love at Full Stretch. And that's where we see Jesus' love at full stretch. And then he's going to point to us that we love one another at full stretch. Another title for a sermon was uh, Jesus the Servant King. And so keep that in mind as we read this text as well. Because in verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We're going to look at that more next week when we look at Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. Chapter 4 starts out. Okay, so real quick, last week, bear with me, last week we saw this incredible thing that Jesus knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going. And he said it many times in the Gospel of John, he knew he'd come from the Father, he was sent from the Father as a missionary to the world, he's fully God, we've established the deity of Jesus in the Gospel of John, okay, And he knew where he was going after his death. He was going back to the Father, to the fellowship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had had since before the foundation of the world. John chapter 17 speaks of that. And so with that in mind, if you knew where you'd come from with such such a majestic descent, and you knew where you were going, such a majestic ascent, you'd probably live your life in a way that was pretty... You, you walk with some good posture. You know, well, I know where I came from. I came from heaven, you know? And no matter what you do with me, kill me if you want, torture me. I know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. So you might live in a way that's just like, so I'm just gonna just like live for myself. But Jesus does something different. And it was Carson who said, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. Okay? And so, verse 4, he rose from supper and he laid aside his garments. The same garment that's going to be taken from him, and what? In just a few hours. Gambled over by the Roman soldiers. So Jesus willingly lays aside his garment for the first time of two in the next day, where he's going to lay it down to serve others. He lays aside his garments, he took a towel, and he girded himself 
Notice the language in this verse. It was uh, Trench that said, with short, vivid statements, John described the remarkable thing that Jesus did in that unforgettable night. We have a sense that when John wrote this many years after the fact, he could still remember every detail. His account reads like that of an eyewitness who'd watched with wonder and suspense. John writes with short, staccato sentences. And what does Jesus do while John observes? He adopts the dress of a menial slave, Caligula writes. The dress of a menial slave. A dress that was looked down upon in both Jewish and Gentile circles. The dress of a servant. There's an old hymn written between 1630 and 1697 by John de Santuel. Maybe close your eyes and listen. The Son of God, His glory hides to dwell with parents poor. And He who made the heavens abides in the dwelling place obscure. Those mighty hands that stay the sky, no earthly toil refuse. And He who set the stars on high, a humble trade pursues. He in whose sight the angels stand, around whose throne they meet, now stoops prepared on bended knee to wash his followers' feet. We've established John chapter 1 verse 1, John chapter 1 verse 14, that Jesus is the word, the word made flesh. He's the reason for everything. And he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the everlasting God. And we are eyewitnesses of this thing. The one who made the host of heaven, the creator, now kneeling down at the filthy feet of dudes who've been cruising medieval streets in sandals. And begins to wash. That's humility. It's what's called the great condescension. And in it, Jesus is teaching us that no one is above serving. No one is above serving. Jesus doesn't deny his godly character, his deity. By serving these men, but his character makes this act of service even more profound. It makes us ask the question, what follower of Jesus ever has the right to refuse serving? Matt Carter said, nothing kills selfless service like pride. What would stop you from serving someone around you at any moment? Pride. Look at verse 5. After that, this is after he, he uh, adorned the garment of a menial slave. He poured water into a basin. So every home back in the day, in Jesus' time and culture, had a giant stone wash basin or pot full of water so that when guests came into the home, 
they were washed by the feet of a lowly servant through water from that stone jar. Uh, And so he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash with a towel with which he was girded. Last week we looked at that, how this was a task that was reserved for the lowest of the slaves. No rabbi or teacher would ever request that his servants would wash his own feet. Even in that culture, it was that low of a, of a task. And have any of you ever wore flip-flops or tevas or a, a good Birkenstock, you know, around a farmyard? Anybody had that pleasure? You know, uh, you realize that as hard as you try to avoid the road apple, the road apple finds you, you know, it finds its way in there. You know, you probably had the mud kind of come up over and squish between the toes and, you know, and then you might, you know, dries left for a little while and dust kind of comes off, you know, or maybe you wash it real quick and then wet feet with sandals and then the dirt gets on it. Oh, it's a whole thing. Right. And, uh, and so it's a dirty job to wash the feet of this culture and of, and of this day, Mike Rowe probably would have had it on one of his episodes, you know, dirty job. He's like, here we are in Jerusalem. It's 33 AD. And you would not believe what these guys have stepped in, but one man has risen up to do this job, you know? And, uh, Thank you. Okay. And in doing that job, and, and when you do watch Mike Rowe, you see these guys, these are pretty humble guys, you know, that are willing to do this. You see humility. As James Montgomery wrote, nearest to the throne of God must be the footstool of humility. The form of God was not exchanged for the form of a servant. It was revealed in the form of a servant here. And F.F. Bruce says, certainly no vestment is so becoming to a Christian minister as the apron of humility. And we're going to see that as that part two we'll get to in uh, verses 14 and 15. uh, As we move on here quickly, we see that that's this part two is that Jesus desires his followers to follow him. And to put on this vestment of humility, this apron of humility. We're going to move quickly through this next exchange between Peter and Jesus. Because I've already summed it up and we studied it last week. So as he goes around the room, he's washing the feet. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now. But you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And that's that initial washing of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus hasn't washed you, if his blood hasn't covered you, if you've not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you have no inheritance with Jesus and you have no part in his ministry. And Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus says in verse 10, he was bathed needs only to wash uh, his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Okay. Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. We're going to hop into that next week and look at Judas's betrayal. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garment and sat down again, 
He said, do you know what I have done to you? And so could you imagine, I mean, this is one of those discipleship moments. Peter, you know, already kind of got the answer wrong there. You were kind of there in discipleship sometimes and we answer the instructor's questions and it's not always right. And he's kind of like, well, close, close, you know, and you're like, it wasn't close at all, was it? He's like, not really, you know. But then he teaches you and he instructs you. We've all been there. I was thinking of youth group this week. It happened like 10 times. And I, you know, who died on the cross for our sins? It's like, "Mm, Joseph. You're like, "Mm." you know, (laughs) keep going, you know. And, uh, And so here they are. And so Jesus asked this question. He's like, do you know what I've just done? You. Washed our feet. He's like, ooh. (laughs) Good one, okay? Um, And so, you know, I kind of wrote down, what would I answer? Um, You served. You made yourself lowly. uh, You washed the feet of the one who would betray you and those who would uh, not be loyal to you, even to the point of death. That's just something that I just kind of wrote answering the questions from knowing what I know. But ultimately, like, I don't really get it. What did you do? <clears throat> he says in verse 13, will you call me teacher and Lord? And you say, well, for I am so. If then your Lord and teacher, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet, okay? So Jesus has shown us a couple things so far. The creator of the starry skies has now humbled himself to wash our feet. And so therefore, who are we to say no when it's time to serve anybody? The second thing that he's shown us, we didn't really touch on it yet, but it's that around that number of 12 whose feet he washed was one who within the very evening would betray him. Jesus has known it the whole time. He's mentioned it a couple times in the Gospel of John. He even says, one of you is a devil, for he knew who would betray him. And yet going around the 12, he got to Judas, and you can just imagine, I know what I would do. And here we are, and oh, he's still three people down, and we're getting down to him, and there's Judas, and oh gosh, oh man, I gotta use the restroom real quick, you know, go to the bathroom, come back out, accidentally skip him, move along, you dirtbag, I know what you're doing, I know what's on in your heart, and the devil's already put in your heart to betray me, and you know what you're doing, and I want you to, you know, just like, no way I'm washing your feet, you sicko, you know, and it's not what Jesus did, take your little bracelet right now and look at it, the WWJD, he would wash Judas's feet, and he did. Is there anybody in your life who is going to do worse to you than what Judas, the one who ate bread with Jesus, the one who Jesus did nothing but serve, he's holy in all of his ways, he created him, he's loved him, he's loved him to the end. Is anyone going to do you wrong like Judas did Jesus? And the answer is no. Okay, Jesus is the example of service and loving our enemies. And he washed his feet. And then he gives us the lesson there in verse 14. If I'm your Lord and your teacher and I wash your feet, now the proper response would be, now you go and wash one another's feet. Now that sounds kind of good. We got some buddies here. We're kind of close, you know. We've had some life experience together and 
it might be a little gross, but you know, I'll get down and scrub and scrub and scrub. And like, man, I love you, bro. And punch you in the shoulder when I'm done. And we'll kind of, <laughs> isn't that funny that we still do this weird cultural thing that's from 2,000 years ago? I know, but what can you do? Okay. All right. But look at the context of what's happening. Go with me to Luke 22, 19. Okay. This is Luke's Last Supper story. And he Jesus initiates communion, okay? He starts communion for us. He shows us communion. He shows us that it is a symbol of the new covenant love of Jesus, okay? And just like us with communion, right? We just had it and just, man, we're just walking in the spirit. We're rejoicing in the blood that cleanses our sins and the body that was broken for us. And then we start arguing with one another right after which one of us is better than the other, did that happen here for anybody? Like during that song, you're like, man of sorrows, you sure stink and I'm way better than you. You know, that's what happened here with Jesus doing the communion. You know, he's like, ah, the bread, you know, picture of my body being broken for you, absorbing the wrath of God towards sin. When you eat and as often as you do, do this in remembrance of me, you know, ah, the, the cup, a symbol of the blood shed to atone for your sin as often as you drink remember you know oh yeah go 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 and then they just get into it with each other at dinner okay this is what happened luke's gospel verse 24 now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest as i was reading this this morning i was like i sure hope one of them was like but andrew's awesome andrew you know but that's not the case. Most of the time it was like, dude, I'm totally, I was like the first one that was called. I went and got you and brought you to Jesus. I'm better. I'm going to be at the right hand of the father in eternity. Yeah. Deal with it. Say my name. You know, there's a dispute after communion with Jesus. Okay. And he said to them, Hey guys, guys, this is how the Gentiles do it. The pagans. The kings of the Gentiles exercise their lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you guys. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves. Is it not he who sits at the table? That's how the world does it. You know it. But even I am the one who's come among you to be a servant. Even I am the one who's come to serve. These brothers of yours who just spent time arguing about which one of them is better, now it's time for you to become lowly in their sight and serve them. F.F. F. Bruce, who's a Christian historian, I appreciate him. He says any one of the disciples would have gladly performed this service for Jesus, but to perform it for the other disciples would have been regarded as an admission of inferiority, not to be tolerated when there was such competition among them for the chief place in their master's kingdom. Guzik says, none of the disciples were interested in washing each other's feet. 
Any of them would have gladly washed Jesus' feet, but they could not wash his without having to be available to wash the other's feet. And that would have been an intolerable admission of inferiority among the fellow competitors for the top position of the disciples' hierarchy, so no one's feet would have gotten washed. And Alistair Begg says, this is a lesson that every church throughout history needs to apply, including Calvary Chapel, Primeville. It's my prayer, you guys, it's heavy on my heart that the Holy Spirit would sink this deep in our hearts from one to another and reciprocated back. How many times is the gospel hindered or impaired because I am concerned about my dignity? I'm preoccupied with my status or how I'm viewed among the, the church or the people, or the work party. But God is concerned to create humility. We think that we deserve a special place, and unless we have that place, or are recognized for what we are, then we cannot or will not walk in what God has for us. We've got to remember New Testament principles, like Romans 12.10, that we need to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. How are, you, are you, how are you doing with that towards your Christian brother here at Calvary, by the way? I invite you all in with us. Man, when I see some of my brothers, you know who you are. There's the hand on the cheek moment when I see you first time in the day. It's like, love you. Just look into the eyes. Just, I love you. The embrace. Let it come. Just embrace the embrace, guys. Kindly affectionate with brotherly love. It goes on to say, in honor giving preference to one another. That's like saying, I prefer you. I prefer you. I honor you. And by honoring you and preferring you, that means I prefer myself less. Or Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. By putting others first, we make ourselves lowly, and we begin to bear one another up. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, likewise, young people, submit yourselves to your elders. And so there is a biblical principle of submission in various relationships throughout the world okay it's a biblical thing we're not getting into that right now but then it goes on to say yes every one of you be submissive to one another how's that going for you are you the guy that's like hey i'm just sorry but you know the role that i've been given by god almighty is that you bow down to me and submit and line up under me okay now there are roles of submission but it's never to be like that And here it says, believe it or not, there's actually times where I'm going to submit to you on this one. I'm going to bow down and condescend like Jesus did. Humble yourselves, it says. It says, be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So Jesus humbles himself. He will be exalted. Take a lesson from him in this. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. 
In Philippians 2.1, and man, this is where your heart, if you know Philippians, your mind should, whenever it's a lesson in humility, take it to Philippians chapter 2. Just Philippians 2. I got to go to Philippians 2. When I was a freshman in high school, I went to Hungary on a youth mission trip. And my youth pastor said, every one of you will remember, uh, memorize Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. Because when we go on this trip, oh, it sounds like a lot of fun. We're leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again, you know. And you're with all your friends. I'm telling you, after two weeks of being crammed on an airplane, being in hostels, you know, in Budapest and up in Estergom and wherever else, you know, and, and they got to use the bathroom and you got to use the bathroom and there's only two beds in the room, but there's three of you and all of this, like it is going to be really quick that you start like, I should probably get the bed. I mean, it happens like to the best of us or the worst of us, depending on how humble you are. Right. And you've got to learn humility and to put other people first and in honor, prefer the other person. And Philippians one says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort and love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection on mercy, by the way, the Greek language is since there is. So since the Holy Spirit's comforted you, since you found the mercy of the God in your life, verse two says, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, have the same love, be of one accord of one mind. Verse three, got to memorize it. You guys, husbands, you got to memorize it towards your wife, wives towards your husband, kids towards your siblings, it's kids your siblings <laughs> let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit in the greek the word nothing means no thing aaron okay just kidding aaron you know i was there when it happened i'm just kidding i know all these kids i'm like you know what you did okay all right, let nothing be done in the, in the language it speaks of with a desire to see yourself succeed. That's not what Jesus did. Is that what you see Jesus doing here? Selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Guys, the Greeks hated this phrase, lowliness of mind, because it meant humble-minded. You know what it means in our day and age humble-minded. You need to be humble-minded towards your brother. You start getting a little bit haughty around him, like, well, technically I should sit in the front seat this time. Bring it down. Lowliness of mind, humble-minded. And when you get to that place, let each esteem others as better than himself. That's what that Romans 12 preference means. You're better than me. You're better than me. You're better than me. So you should have the last giant chicken drumstick, you know? You should have the comfortable seat at the table. You should have the front seat of the car. You shouldn't be the one cleaning up this filthy mess on the floor. You're better than me. You're better than me. You're better than me. I've been teaching our youth group that the heart of a deacon in a church is someone that sees a task that needs to be done and says, if I don't do that, someone I love will have to do it. And they're better than me. And so we take that road of a servant and we prefer them. It goes on to say, verse four, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing, you guys, you could go to any, you know, preschool in town or any religious academy 
pick the religion, and you may hear something like, you got to be humble. Hey, be humble. Check the ego at the door, something like that. But they don't give you the motivation or the power as to how or why. And Philippians chapter 2 goes right into it by referring us to the creator of the universe who loved us and gave himself for us and knelt to wash his disciples' feet. And so he says in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God because he's God. I'm God. It's not robbery for me to say that I'm equal to God. But he made himself of no reputation. What are you, born in a barn? He was, right? Born in a stable. Born to a carpenter, right? Born, raised in Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Were the things that were said about him, okay? So he made himself of no reputation. Isaiah 53 prophesies him. There was no form or comeliness in him that when we see him, we should desire him. Well, isn't he a stallion? I'll follow that. You know, that's not what it was. He was humble and lowly. All right. And he went on to say, he took the form of a bond servant and he came in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of washing the disciples feet, even his enemy who betrayed the God of the universe to be murdered. Okay, that's bad. Okay. But I'm going to serve him anyways. That's Jesus. Okay. But he humbled himself even more. The foot washing pointed to the next thing just a few hours later. Death. What? Gunshot to the heart. Decapitation. The noose of the gallows even worse. What's been considered the worst type of death perfected for pain. Have you ever heard the word excruciating? It's Latin excruciate out of the cross. It was excruciating. The God of the universe humble himself to the point of death in the death of the cross. And then it just goes on to say, we don't have it on the screen, but because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. As we already read, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, our time is up. I can tell by the look in your eyes. Hmm? Okay. Number one, quick thing, practically, we at Calvary do not practice regular foot washing much to your chagrin, I'm sure, okay? It's like the one time in the Bible that foot washing is happening, okay? First Timothy, you see it's referenced to some of the elders' wives, and it was a way that they were showing some service. We don't see it in the book of Acts, practiced in the churches that were planted around the world. We don't see it in the first four centuries of church history, Okay? Uh, and, and there are denominations that do it and that's fine. It's not bad. It's just, you can't put it on people with the same gravity that the other ordinances such as communion, the Lord's supper and baptism as well. However, as you learn Bible interpretation, you learn that there may be a principle there. You know, you're talking, we're talking 
consumption of alcohol, or we might be talking head coverings or something else like that, that, that there may be not the wooden interpretation uh, of the culture of that day, but there may be principles applied that we can apply to us today. Okay, it's a whole thing. Join the equip class that will be starting up soon. There's been a lot of requests for this school of ministry that we do, and we'll teach you how to interpret the Bible. But with all of that to say, what is the cultural relevant similarity to foot washing to this day? And I've spent some time this week, like thinking about it, you know, and I'm like, man, um, I remember there was a guy in our church and he was serving in the church so hard all the time. He's down here serving, 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 and he works really hard at his job. And I just always noticed that his pickup was just filthy muddy. Okay. And I was like, man, I just want to like show up at his house when he's not there and just scrub, 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 and get my hands dirty for him, you know, and just do that thing and vacuum it out and just, you know, never did it, but I wanted to. So right, out for something. Okay. You know, we're just brainstorming here. Okay. Come on, people think tank. Okay. All right. You know, and so, oh, what are some things, man? Um, man, they need some meals, you know, some cook them a meal, right? So it's service. All right. Or man, I drive by that, that lady's house and man, she's my sister. She's not plugged into the church yet, man. She maybe feels when she comes to Calvary that I'm better than you, you know, and she's like, everyone thinks they're better than me there. And then they showed up and they pulled all my weeds and they fertilized my lawn and they mowed it and weed eat it. And you know, it's just such a blessing. And they painted my mailbox to look like a barn. It was awesome. You know, okay. Just brainstorm think tank here. Okay, guys, do the barn. Don't do, leave out the barn thing. If you don't want to paint it like a barn. All right. Lindsay and I were driving back from Polina. I'm just like, honey, like, what are ways? What are ways that we can wash one another's feet? And as I was thinking, it was excruciating, trust me. Remember the context of the Last Supper where all the disciples were arguing with one another as to who was better? And the Lord was just like ministering to my heart. It's like, it's in those moments that you think you're better that you need to humble yourself and wash whatever it is that needs to be washed. Forget what it is. Show them that you prefer them. And there's all kinds of ways that this is applicable. It's been a long day. Dishes in the sink. Clothes all over the floor. Carpet hasn't been vacuumed in forever. You're exhausted. She's exhausted. They're exhausted. And the recliners are leaned back and everyone's sitting there. And you know you're better than everyone else there. So you tell the kids to do it. You put the recliner down and you start serving. Whatever it might be. And I was just thinking, man, there's so many times, you know, we do a lot of brandings, you know. And cowboys are very prideful people. And you're there at the branding And there's a thousand ways to elevate yourself among other people. And it's time to lower yourself in front of them and be a testimony of Jesus among them. Think about it in your world. Let the Holy Spirit minister it among your peer group. And among this church, what are the times? Have you used the bathrooms around here lately? And you see, we got tons of, we got like 70 kids downstairs right now. And when they use toilet paper and they use whatever it is that they're using in there, never hitting the toilet, never dropping the toilet paper. They get it stuck in their shoe. They get the little pieces everywhere. I mean, the 
garbage cans are full, paper towels everywhere. And we go in there and we're like, not today. It's just not the day. Someone else will do it. But Jesus is the one that puts on either a glove or grabs another tissue and begins to pick it up and wipe it down and serve one another. We are wrapping up. In fact, worship team, come on up. I promise we're almost done. Just calm down. You think you're warm. I'm on fire. Am I right? No, I'm kidding. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. One man wrote, by the way, I don't have an original thought in my head in case you're wondering. Perhaps as good a commentary as any on our passage is supplied by the following paragraph from the biography of Robert Cleaver Chapman. No task was too lowly for Chapman. Visitors were particularly impressed by his habit of cleaning the boots and shoes of his guests. Indeed, it was at this point that he met with most resistance for those who stayed with him were conscious that despite the simplicity of his house, he was a man of good breeding. And when they had heard him minister the word with gracious authority, they were extremely sensitive about allowing him to perform so menial a task for them. But he was not to be resisted. On one occasion, a gentleman, having regard no doubt to his host's gentle birth and high spiritual standing, refused at first to let him take away his boots. I insist, was the firm reply. In former days, it was the practice to wash the saints' feet. Now this is no longer the custom. I do the nearest thing and clean their shoes. In Paulina, we're teaching through the book of Acts, and we just studied Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, and they were beaten for the ministry of the gospel. You guys know the story? They're in the inner jail in in shackles and chains, and a great earthquake happens, and it busts their chains loose, and it opens the prison doors, and the jailer sees that the jail has been broken open, and he's taking his sword. He's about to kill himself, and Paul says, hey, 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 we haven't escaped Don't harm yourself. And the jailer says, drops his sword and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And so he takes them to his home. And Paul and Silas preach the gospel to the jailers. I mean, picture the dude. He's got a three-day beard. He's been chain-smoking. Being a jailer is a hard job. Am I right? And he's just like, I was a dead man. You know, we've been singing it. I've been bre- I was breathing, but not alive, you know. And then the Lord called my name and came to my rescue. And these men are going to preach to the family. The whole family gets saved. And after they preach to his family, the Philippian jailer takes a bowl and begins to wash the wounds of the ones that he was just beating. He put the wounds there. And now he says, man, I am sorry. I've got to humble myself. And then some writers say, then Paul and Silas may have taken the bull and used it to baptize people in his family. Just an interesting thought. And so contextually, how did the Philippian jailer wash the feet of the ones that he had just said, I'm better than you. And he turned and in the most practical way said, I'm sorry. So let's let the Holy Spirit inform us as how to serve one another in this way.
You call him teacher and Lord, and you're right, he is. But if you're his follower, you do what he calls you to do. In another place, why do you say Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? I know that's been really convicting for me to study this this week. So let's just go to the Lord and let him minister to us on how to do that. Amen.